My name is Joey Kraft. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and responsibility this morning to open God's Word for us. And so, 2 Kings 18 through 20, you'll be very helped to have a Bible in your lap uh, as we go through this together. So, in the spring of 2021, Colleen Chow learned that she had cancer again. At this time, it was terminal. And as she faced mortality, she wrote a book in the hands of a fiercely tender God. In the book, she quotes a pastor of old who made this comment, Prosperity is a painted window which shuts out much of the clear light of God. Only when the paint is removed is the glass restored to its full transparency. Adversity thus takes away the tinge and the colors, and we see our God far better than before If our eyes are prepared for the light. In the absence of other goods, the good God is better seen. And Colleen comments, she says, In the hands of a fiercely tender God, suffering is a gift. It is the acetone-drenched rag that cleans the painted window, blocking our view of God. And nothing on earth is more precious than seeing and knowing and loving Jesus. End quote. Prosperity is dangerous. Adversity can be a gift. Why? Because in the good times, it's easy to forget the God of all good gifts. We begin to believe our own hype. We believe that we've made it. We begin to trust in material things and trust in ourselves. But when trouble comes, we're quickly reminded, I'm not in control of all that much. I need help. And so, whether we are in prosperity or adversity, the question is, in what or in who do you ultimately trust? This is essentially the question that we've considered throughout our study in Kings. Will Israel trust the Lord no matter what they face? Will they trust the Lord? Answer, no. They continually rebel, rejecting his word, worshiping other gods, chasing sinful and shallow pleasures. And yet, time and time again, what do we see? The Lord is faithful and merciful to all who trust in him and come down. And the Lord is faithful and just, and he will judge those who continually reject him. That's exactly what we saw in 2 Kings 17 last week. The exile of Israel, the ten northern tribes are removed from their land for their disobedience. And with Israel gone, the question remains, what will happen to Judah? What will happen to the southern kingdom? And this is of particular importance because God promised that his forever king would come from the line of David, which is the line of Judah. And so we're left wondering, what's going to happen to Judah? How will God fulfill his promise? And this is why the rest of 2 King focuses on Judah. And today, we, in chapters 18 through 20, we give our attention to King Hezekiah. He is the 13th king of Judah. And the main idea of these passages is this. The Lord hears and delivers those who trust in him because he is faithful. And so the question for us is, in what or in who are you trusting? That idea And that question will guide us as we walk through the text. So verses 1 through 8 summarize King Hezekiah's reign. In verse 3 it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David had done. 
And verse 4 tells us that unlike the other good kings, he does even more. He, he removes the high places. He breaks down the idolatrous places of worship. Now, verse 5 tells us he trusts in the Lord. Verse 6 says it, he held fast to the Lord. As we'll see, this does not mean Hezekiah is perfect. It simply means the overarching pattern of his life is one of trust and obedience and repentance when he fails. This is unlike Israel who continuously rebels against the Lord. That's that summary in verses 9 through 12, that Israel refused to listen to the Lord's commandments. So you have Hezekiah who trusts the Lord, Israel who doesn't. The contrast is now set. And the rest of chapter 18 through 20 give us a few specific events from the life of Hezekiah that we might see how, who he, how he responds and what he trusts in both times of adversity and prosperity. And these events are meant to show us the Lord hears and delivers those who trust in him. So the question is, in who or in what are you trusting? Look at chapter 18, verse 13. The 14th year, King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So Assyria sacked Israel. Now they've attacked Judah. The fortified cities are gone. Only Jerusalem remains. How will Hezekiah respond? Well, at first, Hezekiah tries to make peace with the king of Assyria, doing what his dad did and selling off some of the goods from the temple. Yet, the king of Assyria isn't satisfied. He demands more. Because evil and the Lord's enemies always demand more. There's no use in trying to appease by giving up a little ground. Because giving up a little ground doesn't actually appease at all. And Hezekiah learns this. The king of Assyria sends his state officials and his great army. Verse 19 and 20. The Rabshakeh, I think five-star general, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? King Hezekiah is being threatened. And ironically, it's the king of Assyria who asks the most important question. In whom do you now trust? You'll, You'll notice that trust is the key word in verses 19 through 25. It's there six times. The word rest is actually trust too. And in chapter 18, we find that word nine times. And notice the question. The question is not what did you trust or what will you trust? It's on what you rest this trust. Trust is active, present, resting, deep, entire dependence right now. And notice that's the second question. He doesn't just ask, in in what do you trust? In whom do you now Right now, trust. Right now. All of us live by faith. All of us trust something or someone. Whom do you trust right now? The Assyrian king is trying to intimidate Hezekiah by telling him, listen, anything that you think you can trust is laughable in the face of my great power. That's what we read there in verses 21 through 25. Uh, We know from other places in Scripture that Judah has been like Israel, and they have made military alliances with with Egypt. And so the the king of Assyria is like, listen, you think you can trust Egypt, but Egypt is nothing more than a broken stick in a hiker's hand. 
the moment you put your weight on it, it's going to fail you and it's going to hurt. So don't trust it. In verse 22, he begins to ridicule Hezekiah for Hezekiah's devotion to the Lord. He makes fun of Hezekiah for removing the idolatrous places of worship. He mocks Hezekiah for being narrow-minded, thinking there's only one God who's to be worshipped in, in Jerusalem in the way that the Lord commands. And so the king of Assyria is not just making fun of Hezekiah, he's mocking the Lord himself. You see that in verses 32 and 33. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods, little g, of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? You see what the king of Assyria just did? He compared the one true God to the false little g gods as if they are no difference. In other words, the king of Assyria practices pluralism or universalism. These things are not true. Or they, they are not true and they are not new. And Hezekiah and the people are threatened. They must answer, in whom do you now trust? So at first, the tactic is intimidation. But then he also offers another tactic, enticement. Look there in verses 31 and following. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Make your peace and come to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, his own fig tree, You'll drink water from your own cistern. I'll take you to a land, your own land, grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Come to me. You get your own vine, fig tree, cistern, grain, wine, bread, olives, honey, life, not death. Do you see what he's doing here? The people are given a false promise of peace, prosperity, and pleasure. It's almost as if the king of Syria is saying, did God really say? Because these are the very same things the Lord promised in Deuteronomy 8. And the king of Assyria is saying, listen, it's all yours. The price, pay attention to thus says the king of Assyria and ignore thus says the Lord. The price, make peace with God's enemies. And here's the thing. These pleasures in and of themselves are not wrong. It's the pursuit of these pleasures apart from the provision of the Lord. The temptation is seeking to fulfill godly desires in ungodly ways. The tactics here of the king of Assyria, he tries to scare by saying, look at how great I am. You cannot defeat me. Just give in. And he's saying, he's seducing, saying, look how good I am. You cannot resist me. Just give in. Beloved, we do not face the Assyrian army and king, but we do face an enemy of God. And here's the thing. His strategies have not changed. He will try to scare you into trusting something or someone other than the Lord. And he will try to seduce you into treasuring something other than the Lord. And the question you must answer is this. In whom do you now, right now, trust? Christian, you will be mocked for your faith in Jesus. That might come in audible words from opponents. 
Maybe it's from your parents. Maybe it's from your children. Maybe it's from another family member, a, 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 a co-worker, a classmate, a neighbor. It might come in the whispers of your own soul. But do you hear the taunts? Do you hear them? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man? And that by faith in his death and resurrection alone, one gets to heaven? Do you really think that mere words of gospel good hope provide healing in life's harshest circumstances? Provide hope to one who's been sinned against the most grievous way? Do you really believe that? Mere words? Do you really believe that those who do not trust in Christ will face eternal punishment? Do not let the Bible and other Christians deceive you. All religions are the same. Don't be so dogmatic. You're a narrow-minded bigot. Just give up a little ground. Do you hear the taunts? Students, you should know in particular, if you claim to love Christ, if you share the gospel with your friend, your classmate, you will be mocked. You will be made fun of, not just by your fellow students, but perhaps your professors, your teachers as well. For all of us, if we spend our life, no matter what you're doing, student, lawyer, consultant, homemaker, scientist, custodian, if you spend your life treasuring Christ, seeking to make disciples that delight in his supremacy, you will receive opposition. We must be kind We must be charitable, gentle, and gracious. But even when we are, you will be opposed. And when the enemy is not attacking with fierce words, realize that he might be seducing with false promises. The pleasures of sin might be enticing, but they are shallow. Lust appears to drip honey and be satisfying, but it only ends up being Gossip and lying have smooth speech, but in the end, they're double-edged swords cutting everyone involved. Material possessions provide temporary comfort, but do nothing to provide lasting happiness. Pursuing that godly desire in an ungodly way promises contentment, but eventually only leads to disappointment and despair. Like walking down the streets of New York City and buying a Louis Vuitton bag for 20 bucks from a pop-up street vendor, sin is a cheap counterfeit on the real promises of God. See, sin is a parody of God's promises. It distorts and caricatures the real promises of the Lord. But the Lord... But God offers a feast that satisfies the depths of our soul. When sin tempts you, remember that God is not holding out on you. God is so committed to his glory and your everlasting good that he sent his eternal son, Jesus, to get us back from the grips of sin's false promises that we might enjoy the true promises of salvation now and forever. Uh, Parents, when you're discipling your children, remember to tell them not just how bad sin is, but how much better Jesus is. And then they will have a reason to refute the false promises, not because they have rules to follow, but because they have a Savior 
they can enjoy. See, the good news of the gospel doesn't just say we should not sin. Oh, no, friends, the gospel is much better than that. The gospel says we need not sin because we have all that we need that could satisfy the depths of our soul in Christ. All that we want truly culminates in the person and the beauty and the brilliance of Jesus. And he's the one. He's the answer to the true promises of God. For my non-Christian friends, I'm thankful that you're here. And my guess is you're like every single one of us. You're looking for joy. And I would just invite you to come and taste the superior joy found in Christ. If you want to talk more about that, again, ask the person you came with. Come find me. You can find Nathan. We'd love to talk to you about that. Beloved church family, may God give us the mercy and the grace to stand firm, to trust the Lord alone when we face adversity. What does that look like? Well, Hezekiah gives us a picture in chapter 19. Chapter 19. What does trust in God look like? Chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah immediately cries out to God in an act of humility and repentance. He tears his clothes, put on sackcloth. And and notice Hezekiah is not throwing a temper tantrum like a child who didn't get his way. He's not angry at God. He's not doubting the goodness of God. Throughout chapter 19, he draws increasingly near to God. In verse 3, one of the first things he does is send for the prophet, Isaiah. I want to hear God's word. That's what he's saying. I want to hear the Lord. And look at verse 4. What's his primary concern? The Assyrians are doing what? Mocking the living God. His greatest desire at this moment is not his own safety, but the Lord's honor. Through Isaiah, the Lord gives Hezekiah a word of comfort. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. And then the Lord tells Hezekiah why to not be afraid. The reason, is not, the reason isn't, do not fear because there's nothing to fear. That's not the reason. The reason is, do not fear because I promise to judge Assyria and deliver you. Courage and confidence in the midst of trouble comes not by pretending there's nothing to fear. But from the promises of the Lord that swallow up that thing that otherwise should be feared. See, the Lord's promise won't deliver us from distress, but it does mean we don't have to despair in the midst of it. And with a fresh promise from the Lord, Hezekiah is threatened again in verses 8 through 13. The king of Assyria doubles down, puts his message in writing, and sends it on the way. And look at verse 10. What's the issue he raises again? Do not let the God in whom you what? I was weak. Do not let the God in whom you... Trust, deceive you. There it is again. There it is again. Hezekiah, who are you going to trust? Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. 
Hezekiah reveals his trust in God by crying out to God in prayer. And what does he pray? Verse 15 and 16. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Notice that Hezekiah's prayer starts with who God is. The Assyrians compare him to a little g-god, but six times Hezekiah calls upon the name of the Lord. You see it in the Bible? Six times. The Lord, the personal, the covenant name of God. Hezekiah is not offering village prayers to a village God. He is offering prayers to the one true transcendent king who rules the earth. And his view of God compels him to praise God for who he is and pray to God. He approaches God not with timid questions, but bold requests. Not apologetically, but expectantly. Look at verse 19, his driving motivation. So now, O Lord, save us, please. Well, that's a, a plea, pray from his hand. Why? Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah is praying not for just a change in circumstances, but the hallowing of God's name in all the earth. Hezekiah's prayers reveal his deepest trust and his greatest treasure. And the same is true for us. Our prayers reveal our deepest trust and greatest treasure. True faith, genuine trust in God is inseparable from prayer. A follower of Christ who prays, who who does not pray rather, is no more real than a fire without heat or a peanut butter and jelly without peanut butter. It just doesn't exist. And so the question, in whom do you now trust, is answered in part by evaluating prayers. Do you approach God praising him for who he is and pleading for his glory? Be very, very clear. I am not saying that prayer makes you a Christian That's no more true than going to the the hospital makes you a doctor. It doesn't work that way. We we come, a Christian is anyone who keeps repenting of their sin and keeps trusting in Christ for faith or for salvation. That's who a Christian is. But a true Christian reveals their trust in prayer because prayer is what faith looks like. Beloved, this is a good opportunity to evaluate ourselves. If prayer signifies the heartbeat of your faith, would you have a pulse? And if you have a pulse, would it be not just for personal comfort, but for the fame of Jesus Christ? Yes, we should pray for everything to God in prayer. From our daily needs to our deepest wants, nothing is too small to bring to God in prayer. We should approach God boldly asking him to fulfill the depths of our godly desires and dreams. So yes, pray for that parking spot as you circle around the the place in D.C. Pray for grades. Pray for that internship. Pray for the job. Pray for the spouse. Pray for the child. Pray for the house. Pray for all the things. Yes. But do you also praise God for his character? Do you find yourself repenting of specific sin? 
Do you pray for the hallowing of Christ's name? If God were to answer your prayers from this past week, would you simply have more comfort? Or would God be receiving more glory among your neighbors and the nations? Would you simply have more of what you want? Or would your fellow church members actually love Christ more? As your children listen to your prayers, would they hear praises for God's character and repentance of your sin? Or just know that you want more stuff? At this point, I'm taking a risk. And the risk is guilting you into prayer. Some of you right now feel guilty. Oh, I gotta pray more. I gotta. Guilt is not a good motivator for prayer. It's not why we pray. We pray because of God's grace. And I want to give you two, two reasons from this text to fuel your prayer life. Very simple. Reason one, God hears your prayers. We, we just overlook, like that's astounding. God hears our prayers. Look at Hezekiah, verse 16. Incline your ear, Lord, hear and open. In chapter 20, we see another prayer of Hezekiah. And God says, I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. So do not pray out of obligation. Pray because it's an opportunity for the God of the universe to hear your prayers. Prayer is a privilege of the gospel. We know that God will hear the prayers of his children because his son got up on the third day and is in heaven praying for his own. Beloved, God hears our prayers. Our father in heaven bends his ear to hear our prayers, not just my prayer, our prayer. Prayer is a family activity. Isn't this how God, or how Jesus taught us to pray? Did he say, my father in heaven, hallowed be your name? He could have said that. That's true. But he said, our father in heaven. Prayer is a communal activity. We remember that God hears our prayers. So pray because God hears. And second, pray because God answers. Look at verse 21. I have heard, answer, this is the word of the Lord has spoke concerning Sennacherib. Isaiah has the same recounting of this uh, event and his words are even stronger. There it says, thus says the Lord, because you prayed to me, this is the word of the Lord. Hezekiah's prayer prompts God's action. That's amazing. Prayer changes things. But Joey, I thought God was sovereign. He is. But get this. God is sovereign not just over what will happen, but how it will happen. And God has ordained that the, the global hallowing of his name and the advancement of his gospel will happen in answer to the bold repre- uh, request of his people. That's how God has ordained it to happen. God's sovereignty does not lead to passivity. It should lead to prayerfulness. Because if God is, isn't sovereign, you shouldn't pray. He's not in control. But if he is sovereign, we should pray about everything. His rule does not eliminate our responsibility to plead before his throne. When we get to heaven, perhaps one of our great joys might be seeing what God has done in answer to one of our prayers. 
Maybe, just maybe, I don't, this, is, this is pure, this is biblical imagination, but maybe when we get to heaven, God will give us a book. The first one will be the book of life. My name was in there, praise be to God. The second book is, right, on the title, it says, I have heard. And the subtitle, because you prayed to me. And we read that book and we see that all God did for the glory of his name, the beauty of Christ, the good of our fellow brothers and sisters, because of our prayers. Maybe that might be one of the privileges that we have in heaven. But regardless, we know God hears and answers prayers. Restoration Church, let's continue to seek the face of God because he hears and he answers. Again, in God's kind providence, we get to do that tonight. You want to wait to apply this sermon, 5 p.m. right here as a family, we pray not to a village God, village prayers, to a global God for his global glory. One way you can work that out. You want another way? Just go to your community group leader this week and be like, would it be okay if I came to community group this week and led our group in about 20 minutes of prayer? Would that be okay? My, if they say no, come talk to me and I'll talk to them. Yes, let's pray. Hezekiah shows his trust in the Lord by praying. And here's what we see. The Lord hears and delivers those who trust in him because he is faithful. Verses 21 through 28, we have a poem from the lips of the Lord. Uh, The first stanza, God denounces Assyria's pride. You'll see in those verses five times the king of Assyria is gloating. I have done this. I have done this. I have done this. God denounces it. Second stanza, 25 and 26, God asserts his sovereignty. Everything will happen just as he said. Third stanza, 27 and 28, God will judge Assyria and deliver the people. In verses 29 through 34, the the Lord provides some color commentary on his poem. Don't worry, and you'll see in a few years, everything's going to be just fine. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in verse 34, look at the main reason why. For I will defend this city to save it. Because you're so awesome. No. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. The Lord hears and delivers because he is faithful. In verses 35 through 37, we see how it all turns out. 185,000 Assyrians are suddenly struck down by the Lord. Sennacherib returns home and is struck down in his own land by his sons. Just like Chapter 19, 6 and 7 said it would. God's word is true, and God's word comes true. Chapter 19 is a portrait of the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord hears and delivers all those who trust him because he is faithful. Because there's no such thing as a hopeless situation. No such thing. God said he would deliver his people from his enemy, and he did. God may not keep us from the distress, but we don't have to despair. And this reminds us of an even greater deliverance. God said he would send his son to Jesus to deliver his people from the grips of Satan, sin, and death. And he has. Yes, we'll be mocked. Yes, we'll be seen as foolish. Yes, we'll go through trials and tribulations, but we do so with a great hope, a resurrected Savior. Just as God delivered Jesus from the grave, he will deliver all those who trust in him to be with him forever does not promise an easy life, but it promises a glorious heaven with our Christ. Our hope beyond the grave gives us hope no matter what we face, 
Because we live for a better world, a better king, a sovereign savior. The steadfast promises of God are the foundation for fearless trust as we seek to love God and make disciples that delight in his premises. So beloved, let me encourage you this week just to find some specific promises of God that are all throughout the Bible. And just hold on to them. Marvel about the forgiveness and unbreakable love God promises in Romans 8. Meditate on the glorious promise of adoption in Ephesians 1. Hope in the glories of heaven revealed in Revelation 21. And share these promises with your children, with your roommates, with your fellow CG members, that they too might delight in the deliverer. For my friends not trusting in Christ, I wonder where you look in hard times. Where do you go when you're looking for deliverance? I invite you to come to the one true Lord. Here's the thing. Apart from Christ, apart from trust in God, here's the sobering truth. We are like the king of Assyria. We are enemies of God. And we are left to face the judgment of God. Apart from Christ, apart from trusting in God, the only thing that awaits us is death and destruction. That is sobering, but it is true. And I invite you to come trust the one who has life everlasting. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, we see that Hezekiah trusts the Lord in the midst of adversity. Now in chapter 20, Hezekiah faces another threat, prosperity. What will he do? Chapter 20, Hezekiah is told that he's sick, he's going to die. In verse 2, he seeks the Lord. Please remember how I have walked with you in faithfulness and a whole heart. The Lord responds through Isaiah in verse 5. Turn back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your hears. Behold, I will heal you. And he tells us a couple verses later why. I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David. Chronologically speaking... These chapters come before or during what we just read. And we know that because he was just delivered from Assyria, and now he's praying for deliverance from Assyria. So why would the author do this? Why would the author put these chapters here? It's to show us as good as Hezekiah is, he isn't the final forever king. Yes, he's from the line of David. Yes, he defeated the greatest enemy. The author is trying to pull us forward. And so the first thing he tells us is after this great victory, Hezekiah is at the point of death. Hezekiah is mortal, not the promised Messiah. He learns he's about to die, so he prays. And God in his mercy gives him 15 years of life. And notice, Hezekiah appealed to his own obedience and faithfulness. That's true on the whole. But notice why God answered the prayer. For my own sake. The Lord answers according to his own covenant promise. Because he is faithful. The Lord's deliverance does not rest ultimately on the fate of his people. But on his faithfulness. And that's a good thing. Because our faith is shaky. It is not enough. It's not enough. We see that right here. Hezekiah doesn't take the Lord at his word, he asks for a sign. 
Like, Lord, I trust you, kind of. And so I know you said it, but now can you show me? I need a little more from you, God. The Lord and his mercy accommodates Hezekiah. And we read that the Lord turns back the sun 10 steps on the dial. I have no idea how God does this. Here's what I do know. He created the sun out of nothing. So to bend its rays a few feet is no problem. Right? In any case, God says and shows Hezekiah, I'm turning back the clock 15 years. I'm giving you more life. I'm giving you more life. I'm being exceedingly kind. How will Hezekiah respond to the Lord's promise and the prosperity that he has? Chapter 20, verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Okay, so now Hezekiah has an opportunity to do what he resolved to do. God, I want your name to be glorified among the nations. The nations are here. And God, you've done a great work. Hezekiah, in God's kindness, gets to play a part in answering his own prayer. Verse 13. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There is nothing in all his house or on his realm that that Hezekiah did not show Hezekiah is flattered. And in his pride and self-importance overcomes a sense of God's glory. Five times the author tells us about his possessions. And then in verse 15, Hezekiah himself says, all that's in my house, my storehouse. Instead of testifying to the greatness of the Lord, Hezekiah shows him his treasure. Hezekiah failed. He's blinded. His trust and treasure are misplaced. Prosperity might be a greater danger than adversity when it comes to trusting the Lord. It puts paint on the window and tempts us to believe we're good. We got it all figured out. Verses 14 through 18, Isaiah confronts Hezekiah and reveals his waywardness. He foretells of the coming Babylon invasion. Verse 17. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Hezekiah pridefully showed his wealth to Babylon and all that wealth will be now carried off. How does Hezekiah respond? Does he tear his clothes and weep bitterly crying out for God's glory like he's done before? Look at verse 18. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Astonishingly, Hezekiah thinks only of himself in this moment. It's like he tells Isaiah, You had me for a minute, buddy. But it's going to be good while I'm alive? Ah, That's fine then. Good. 
here we see a picture of Hezekiah that's selfish and short-sighted, shaky faith, misplaced trust. He's overwhelmed by personal gain, not God's glory. Think about this. Hezekiah stands firm against the threats and temptations, revealing his trust in God, fervently praying to God. And now he's dazzled by prosperity and overtaken by pride. Hezekiah is a hypocrite. And so am I. And so are you. This doesn't make sense. We don't make sense. Our faith is often weak and frail. Hezekiah's story ends this way to remind us to look beyond Hezekiah. Hezekiah is not simply an example to follow. King Hezekiah is not the real hero. The failures of Hezekiah should remind us of ourselves and leave us yearning for another king, the true hero, the king, Jesus, who is not an example to follow, but a deliverer of all those who trust in him. Kings is telling us the Lord hears and delivers those who trust in him because he is faithful. We are not saved because we have great faith. We are saved because we have a faithful God. The weakest of faith and the strongest of the Lord brings hope. Your sin will tell you to hide. Your shame will say you're too dirty. Your doubt will persuade you to to delay. Your guilt will convince you that you've gone too far. But as we've seen throughout King, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Upon the slightest whiff of repentance, compassion pours out. Upon the slightest sign of trust and humility, His mercy pours out. Will you come to the Lord this morning? Will you turn from yourself and trust in Jesus alone? Because Jesus loves to save confused, hypocritical sinners who humbly admit their need for and trust in him. As I read years ago, the cross is the quickest and best summary of what God says to unworthy people. We are the unworthy. We are the hypocrites. We are the weak, shaky faith. Our days are like Hezekiah's. Some days, we respond well, trusting the Lord. Other days, we fail. The question in those moments is, where is your trust? In who or in what are you trusting in? The Lord hears and delivers those who trust in him because he is faithful. In whom do you now, right now, trust? Let's pray. God, your word is good. Your promises are sure. Remind us that life has highs and lows. There is no getting around that. Remind us of the surety of your word that we might trust in you no matter what we face. Give us the grace to navigate affliction and affluence with a deep trust in you as we seek your global glory. God, give us grace. Give us grace. Remind us that you hear and deliver because you are forever faithful. Do this, we ask, for the glory of Christ. 